The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people make friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate. Put days like today in perspective. Call me, 1-800-743-CBC, or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Leave it to the banks to spoil the fake party. Yeah, the Fed was fine today, calm, measured even. But it was discouraging news on the mini-bank crisis from the Treasury Department that sent the Dow plunging 530 points, S&P plummeting 1.65%, and Nasdaq nosediving 1.6%. Yep, this afternoon, the Fed dip was widely expected. It raised interest rates by a quarter of a percent. Fed Chief Jay Powell told us there's still plenty of inflation in the system, so he has to tighten. But he also said the recent bank runs have made the Fed feel less worried about inflation in the future. Because weakness at the banks means credit's going to get tighter going forward. In other words, the collapse of three banks and the worries about many others are doing Powell's job for him, although not in the orderly way he would necessarily like it to be. It was calm. It was soothing. It was thoughtful. If the banking situation stabilizes and inflation, especially wage inflation, doesn't improve, then I, I, I get it. He'll hit us with a very necessary quarter point hike. He made that clear. Again, logical, reasonable, and something anyone with a savings account should actually cheer. I think the market would have been fine with the Fed meeting. Initially, we were actually up in response. If Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen didn't come out at the same time, and say the government won't be bailing out the shareholders or bondholders or failed banks. Even that's okay. But then she said Treasury isn't even considering a unilateral expansion of deposit insurance. Not okay. Because that's what's needed to prevent more bank runs. Why not just pull your money out if there's no guarantee? See, it just so happens that Powell was talking about how the bank failures could lead to a de facto tightening exactly at the same time that Yellen did her best to reassure no one. Together, the words overshadowed everything else that was reasonable, logical, and measured that Powell said. Because Wall Street had actually started convincing itself that maybe, just maybe, the banking system was on the mend, stabilizing, and the government might protect depositors. All depositors. So we learned a valuable lesson today. 
Whenever we think that we can go back to normal, we have to recognize the banking system is just damaged by inadequate deposit protection, which revokes confidence and tightens credit all by itself. It is absolutely true that we want the Fed to be vigilant against inflation. Go down the aisle of any retailer, visit any car dealership, try to buy a home. It's all still way too expensive versus four years ago. Sure, Powell says there's housing weakness, but nothing meaningful. Wages still going higher, except maybe not as fast as before. And that's why I think a quarter point basis hike seemed right. It may be another if things don't cool off. But the banking crisis makes it so we got two markets. The market that needs a financial system with a clean bill of health, and a market that only wants to own the stocks of the fastest growing companies, especially tech companies like NVIDIA or Meta or Apple or Microsoft, the usual gang that does well without any financing. In between, there's a ragtag group of stocks that are trading on their fundamentals, uh, thank heavens. But those are very hard to judge right now because the economy is so hard to predict. The big bifurcation, I find it pretty nuts. The market, in all its wisdom, decided that if the bank stocks go down, then there'll be no economic activity because nobody will be able to get credit. But if a company doesn't need to borrow, then its business is fine. Of course, this is stupid. Tech's only as good as its customers, and many of its customers are in big trouble if they can't get credit, which is why perhaps even these stores were swept away by the end of the day. So let's do this. Let me step back, have a sip of my tea, regain my voice. Regain my... All right, that didn't work. And maybe explain what's really happening, as opposed to what this market's plowing about, and I am certainly trying to enunciate. First, Jay Powell's trying, like everyone else, to figure out what the heck went wrong here with the banks that just failed, beyond incredibly poor management. Were the regulators asleep at the switch? Is there another thing lurking behind the door? Uh, is there anything we can do better? He's trying to be so constructive. Like everyone else in the government, he'll say the bank system is strong, but that's what you have to say. Everybody knows that. The banking system isn't strong, though. It's not strong enough for us not to be worried. Unfortunately, that fear can't be quantified, like the price of a home or, or the, uh, how much a car costs or eggs or bacon or wages or apparel. We just can't nail it down. And worse, Yellen created a completely unnecessary level of, of uncertainty by speaking about the crisis as if it's definitely ongoing. Next thing you know, you feel like it's silly to be focused on how many basis points the Fed's hitting us with. What, what matters is that two weeks into the, this mini financial crisis, we have no plans. We don't know what's happening. We aren't sure who else is going to fail, but it sure seems like someone will. In the end, we may end up with the worst solution. This is how you wipe out inflation. You get a vicious deflationary wave of bank failures that savages the entire economy. Of course, Powell doesn't want it to be that way, but Powell's a realist. He knows credit will get difficult if there are more bank runs. That's natural. Yellen doesn't want it either, but Yellen's a politician. She has to say over and over again that the taxpayers won't have to pay for anything, but we're somehow going to make sure depositors are okay, but definitely without extending the FDIC's deposit insurers or for anybody else. Powell, though, Powell's in a jam. If he didn't raise rates, he'd look like he was panicking. If he raised them by a quarter point and nothing else happened, it would have been fine. The problem is Powell has packed himself into what I call an off-the-cuff corner with these ridiculous press conferences. We got question after question after question, which in totality made us feel like the banking collapse is both past and, more important, future. We got plenty of fear generated just by the same questions over and over and over again in different forms, hoping that someone can trip up Powell. Uh, and we, we want to know why there was no oversight. Uh, how come the bankers were allowed to do what they do? Uh, hey, will it happen again? Now, that is the reporter's job. Powell has no choice but to play a rope-a-dope like Muhammad Ali. I hate it, though, because it doesn't help anyone, least of all you. 
and I find it actually unbecoming of the office itself. Look at it this way. We came into session thinking the Fed and Treasury and the FDIC were starting to get control of the bank crisis. We believed things were stabilizing. But now, thanks to the congressional hectoring of Janet Yellen and the endless replay of questions to Powell about the fragility of the banking system, we came out of the session worried. We came out nervous. We came out frightful. And of course, we came out stealing ourselves for the inevitable bank failures that we didn't think were inevitable going into today. The market got bowled over so easily because we were dumbfounded that Yellen, thought to be a seasoned non-political hand, could be so tone-deaf with her words. Destroying the most fragile banks, think First Republic perhaps, knowing what we know about the speed of the bank runs, it was, let's say, ill-timed, ill-advised, definitely suboptimal. Bottom line, we ended up not worrying at all about that quarter-point rate hike and instead being racked by the notion of which bank will collapse next, tearing out our hair over how depositors make it hurt, investors will be crushed. Well, who knows? Bondholders, who's next? Not a great way to resolve what otherwise would have been an orderly display against inflation and in favor of confidence and stability that we all crave and, frankly, deserve. Sunny in Illinois, sunny. Hey, Jim, a big investment club. Booyah to you, my friend. Thank you. What's up? Hey, man, I've been a longtime fan of your show, and uh, I really need to tap into your 25 years of market wisdom. I'm thinking about investing in energy right now. As you know, oil has come down, but it's hovering around $70 a a barrel. So I'm looking at a company, and I'm wondering if you could tell me and all your other investment club members if you would invest in this one company that's pulled back about 10% in price, but it has a dividend yield of 10%. Would you recommend... ET to us investment club members, and would you consider buying it for your charitable trust? Um, well, I would. I don't think it's well as well managed as some of the others. Uh, if you want to know the best, well, the best run, it's Enterprise Products Partners. That yields eight years, yields ten. I don't like to reach for yield. I would prefer Enterprise Products Partners. Kevin in Illinois, Kevin. Hello, Jim Boyer. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How about you? Doing very well, but I've got a question. From March 8th to March 15th, the Fed posted on their website uh, on the 17th that they'd increase the balance sheet from $8.3 trillion to $8.6 trillion, a $297 billion increase. And I can only think that that's because of the uh, Silicon Valley Bank problem. And how is this not a buyout or a back, uh, 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 the Fed back buying the uh, debt uh, well, SVB, remember, the Federal the Reserve has talked about using the discount window, which has been used historically to be able to preserve stability in the system. So I don't think the Fed's doing anything wrong. There's a lot of instability. We found out far more instability than we realized at 3 o'clock when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen revealed herself as being someone who gave false reassurance and then took that even that away. So let's uh, deal with it as we may. Sumner in New York. Sumner. Hi. How are you? Summer? I'm good. Yeah, How are you? Summer Bay. How are you? I am good. Uh, what's going on? I want to know what's going on with the hospitality industry. Are we turning it around? I think no, so. It look, it, it, I think it's very strong, but it depends on the day. I mean, you have a day like today where people are very fearful and then wondering whether the good news will continue. And then tomorrow, if you don't get a bank failure, people will go right back. 
And that's why I think that stocks like Airbnb, Marriott are all good to go. And I even like the stock of American Express. All right, leave it to the banks to spoil the Fed party. They always do. Not a great way to resolve what otherwise would have been an orderly display in favor of confidence and stability and against inflation. I mean, money tonight. With the Fed decision in the rear view, could it be time to circle back to the office reads? Or does the sector remain untouchable? I'll give you my take. And then we're going to go and talk to, got to go back to the charts and talk to Larry Williams. The big box retailers tend to rally this time of year. But who's leading the charge? I'm going off the charts. And on holding, surged after earnings. So could this be an apparel name that can be held up in the face of a volatile market? I'm seeing if the stock can continue its run with the company's top brass. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Now that we're over the hump of today's Fed meeting and the government's made an attempt to try to stabilize the banking crisis, we need to address the other black hole of value destruction in this economy. I'm talking about office real estate, especially as seen through the prism of the real estate investment trusts that own so much office property. I've been warning you away from the office REITs for months, and you don't need to be a genius to understand why. During the pandemic, we embraced remote work, and for many white-collar jobs, That hasn't changed back to once COVID was beaten. Remote work is here to stay, which means there's going to be a lot less demand for office space. Who needs it when you've got fewer people working in person? Plus, if you're worried about a slowing economy, and we are indeed worried about that, then office real estate is the last place you'd want to go. But it's not enough just to stay away from the office streets. This is turning into a serious economy-wide problem, and we got to overcome it. So let me walk you through it, because the implications, frankly, are... 
First, we're increasingly seeing that office tenants simply aren't taking new leases. Why would they when we've got fewer people working in person? At the same time, they're refusing to accept higher rents or downsizing their existing office footprints. Again, why pay for that real estate if you don't need it? Second, there's an interest rate angle here. Because rates have risen so rapidly over the past year, financing costs have gone through the roof for these office landlords, which comes into play whenever these companies want to build something new or refinance something old if they want to get things better. And that's before we even get into the cost of the real estate itself. If the owners of these office properties decide to sell their buildings, they're going to find that they likely can't get the kind of prices they want. If they decide they want to convert their office buildings into apartment buildings, something I think is very good, they'll find this is very expensive and takes ages. And that's assuming you get approval from the zoning board and hungry tax authorities who know that commercial real estate brings in a lot more revenue than residential. Meanwhile, they're not collecting any rent as that space gets renovated. Either way, these buildings are making them much less money. When a property's earnings power goes down, the value goes down, and it takes the REIT stock down with it. Put it all together, and there's a tremendous amount of value destruction that I want you near. Consider them one by one. Now, the poster child for dysfunctional office REIT is SL Green. This stock actually had a big run in January and early February, but that was a nonsensical move. It's been fully repealed and then some. In fact, from its early February high roughly seven weeks ago, SL has been more than cut in half. Now trading its lowest level since the summer of 2009. Yesterday, the stock got hit with a one-two punch of negative analyst commentary. First, Goldman Sachs resumed coverage of several REITs and started SL Green with an outright sell, 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 sell rating, pointing to its ugly balance sheet, the interest rate risk on refinancings, and the fact that they own a ton of older buildings that are even less demand than new ones. Meanwhile, Piper Sandler slashed his price target from $42 to $27. Even with the stock at its lowest level since 2009, I have to tell you, I agree with the bears. SO Green has way too much debt. In fact, their debt to EBITDA ratio clocks in at around 13. That's insanely bad, worse than the group. To make matters worse, SO Green plans to clean up its balance sheet, involve raising money by selling some buildings. They want to sell over $2 billion in property this year. But I think they could run into real trouble here because who the heck wants to buy an office building in this environment, let alone an old office building? That leaves us so green with a few options, none of them good. They can sell more buildings at lower prices to raise the same amount of money, or they can cut their dividend again like they did in December. Given that the stock currently sports a nearly 15% yield, I mean, isn't that market telling you a dividend cut is inevitable? Just an ugly situation all around. Some would say an invitation to a REIT funeral. Second remote work, the big casualty, will be VNO, Vernado. This is one I actually like. I mean, it's another office REIT, just like SL Green. It owns a ton of properties in New York City, but they, they all do have the second worst balance sheet in the group. The one saving grace here is that Fernando's not a pure play on office real estate. They get 18% of their operating income from uh, the uh, retail properties, but that's not enough to change the whole story. Yesterday, we saw an interesting bull versus bear debate on Vernado from the same two analysts that mentioned S.O. Green negatively. Goldman Sachs was just as negative on Vernado as they were on S.O. Green, starting the stock with a sell, 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 even while acknowledging that Vernado's New York City office properties are of high quality. 
They are. They're not bad. If the situation gets worse, which is what I'm expecting, then investors will start looking at the number of Class A properties they have versus lower quality B or C properties. Vernado is better buildings, but that really makes them a best house in a bad neighborhood, so to speak, uh, one with very good long-term management. That's why Piper Sandler actually upgraded Vernado from underweight to neutral, basically arguing that investors have gotten too negative on the space and the stock's simply gotten way too cheap down here. My view, Vernado's definitely in better shape than SO Green, but that's the lowest of low bars. What can I say? The stock's down because business is bad and getting worse, and in this environment, no one's getting compensated to take a flyer like that. Now, the largest office REIT is actually a more specialized play. It's called Alexandria Real Estate Equities. company used to be on a lot. And indeed, it's a name we like very much because they own highly specialized properties like laboratory spaces for biotech firms. But that niche has its own problems. Given that IPO market's been closed for 15 months now, it's very hard for smaller biotech outfits to raise money. And you can't rent office space without cash. No wonder it's down nearly 20% for the year. And don't even get me started on WeWork. Yes, that WeWork. These guys recently announced they're delaying the filing of their annual report. And, oh, they got to restructure their debt, given that the balance sheet was untenable. WeWork did manage to clean up its balance sheet somewhat, but they made it happen by issuing a ton of new stock. No thank you. And that's why this thing's now become too small for me to talk about. Bottom line, even if we eventually stabilize the bank system, we still need to reckon with the collapse in demand for office real estate and the quality of that real estate. These office REITs have been slowly bleeding over a year now. It's like somebody nicked an artery and the blood is spurting out. Unfortunately, I think the office space business could get a lot worse before it gets better, which means these office REITs still have, sadly, more downside. Man, money is back after the break. Coming up... Hope springs eternal for the big box brethren. And Costco leads the pack. Find out why next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older. Like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Even though the Federal Reserve said it's not done fighting inflation after today's quarter point rate hike, they also indicated we're nearing the end of this tightening cycle. Thank heavens. Makes sense to me. I find it hard to believe the Fed can keep aggressively fighting inflation, but we're also constantly worrying about bank runs. 
counterintuitive. Even if the Fed isn't quite your friend at this point, it feels a lot less of an enemy than it was a month ago. Though, actually, I'm not as certain about Treasury Secretary Yellen after her ill-advised comments that made you feel a lot more worried about the banking system than anyone would like. Of course, if this year's taught us anything, it's that predicting the trajectory of the broader economy is insanely difficult from week to week or even month to month. That makes it hard to come up with a macro forecast for the stock market based on fundamentals, which is why we need to fall back on something else. So tonight, we're taking a more empirical approach, as you know we like to do, and we're going off the charts with one of our absolute favorites, which is Larry Williams. He's that legendary technician I often mention about. He's a market historian. He's been the top expert in the space since the 60s. Larry's written over a dozen books, created a host of his own proprietary technical indicators, which everybody uses. And you can find his work on the website, IReallyTrade.com. I find him a calming experience. I find him a cerebral experience. More important, he's got a stellar track record for you. Don't forget, Larry's the one who called the COVID bottom in the spring of 2020, when the rest of Wall Street was still thought the world was going to end. He's the one who's predicted the big January rally at the beginning of this year. And he also said it would be temporary. And recently, he helped discern that leadership has switched back to the NASDAQ from the mighty Dow, which was certainly the case until Yellen's comments at 3 o'clock. His feeling now? Well, you know what? Williams is actually feeling pretty good about the market, which certainly does help on a miserable day like today. Why? History. You see, he's constantly trying to spot cycles or patterns in the market that seem to repeat themselves over and over again. Those patterns don't necessarily repeat perfectly, but they still give you a surprising level of insight into the future. I am always stunned by this because the market's not supposed to work this way. Totally illogical. The thing is, when you look at the historical action, you find these patterns repeating themselves all the time. And when Williams looks at this market, he says we've seen this pattern before. I find that reassuring. Specifically, he thinks our recent action looks eerily similar to 2008. Okay, not yet. That's already happened, okay? And then 2009, when stocks crashed, bottomed, and started rebounding over the course of the financial crisis. In other words, we kind of went through the 2008 part already. Check out this chart of the weekly action in the NASDAQ from both periods. The red line is 2008 and 2009. The black line, it's right now. Williams points out that just like last year, the Nasdaq was much weaker than the Dow or the S&P in 2008. And when you overlay these two periods, it's stunning. It's stunning how similar they look, isn't it? Even though our problems last year had almost nothing in common with our problems in 2008, the Nasdaq's performance was extremely similar. Can we take it to the bank? No. Must we observe it? Yes. Then we flip the calendar in 2009, and look at this. Within a few months, the market bottomed. This is the so-called Haynes bottom, if you remember, from late Mark Haynes. And then we had an, just embarked on a fabulous multi-year run. You had to take action. You couldn't sit it out. Looks very similar to the bottom last fall. Larry's not necessarily saying the Nasdaq will repeat its 2009 performance in 2023. However, this index has clearly been reliving its financial crisis era trajectory. And if that pattern continues, well, it's very good news, especially for tech. And once again, I reiterate, tech was flying until we got comments about bank uh, depositors not necessarily be safe from Janet Yellen at the same time as that ridiculous press conference at the Federal Reserve. Now, it's not just the Nasdaq. Take a look at the weekly chart of the S&P 500. Again, the 2008 to 2009 periods in red, presence in black. If that's not deja vu, I don't know what is. While the action is not exactly the same, Williams notes that the major rallies and declines all seem to take place at the same time of year, and they lasted for similar durations. Once again, if the S&P keeps repeating the 2009 trajectory, this is precisely when you want to be a buyer. See, you've got to remember, this is history, but history does repeat itself in the stock market repeatedly. 
Now, what if you zoom out and look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average? It's the oldest of the major averages versus past performance in every two-year period since 1880. Yep, when Larry ran the numbers, he found the best match for the market's current trajectory. It's actually, we got to go back to President Kennedy, 1962 to 1963. Once again, if that pattern holds up, it's great news for the bulls because it predicts a monster move higher. I know, kind of crazy. At least I was born then. All right, what about some specific charts? Let's get real granular. Um, there's another pattern Williams has spotted. It's that the major retailers tend to run up at this time of the year. This is something we've talked about before. He's found that we typically see an Easter rally from late March through early April. We certainly want to catch that. This year, among the big box players, the leader of the pack is Creeley, Kramer, Fabe, and Child Trust Holding, Costco. Check out this chart of the big box names, all right? This is the one we're focused on. Costco, Navy, Walmart, Red, Target, Light Blue. You can see Costco and Walmart were the first ones to bottom. Costco has been rallying harder than Walmart or Target of late, of which, by the way, there's no particular reason because the last, the last month of the last quarter of, of Costco wasn't that hot. But could history repeat itself? Like I said, Williams is always searching for cycles that repeat themselves, not just in the average, but also in individual charts. So now let's take a look at the weekly chart of Costco with Larry's cycle forecast in red. Larry's historical work shows that Costco tends to rally 75% of the time when we reach this point in the cycle. And those rallies typically last three months. Now check out Costco's daily chart with the seasonal pattern in blue, how Costco tends to perform at any given point in the year based on historical data. Williams has noticed something interesting here. Costco's coming out of a seasonally weak period over the last several weeks. Usually the stock market the stock makes a lower level, lower low in March versus the start of the year. But this year, Costco stock is doing better than seasonal pattern. According to Larry, that's very bullish. The bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Larry Williams suggests that the market's already bottomed for real and could be due for a long-lasting move. That's a nice tonic for how we left today after yelling pal tag team. Also in particular, he very much likes Costco, as do we, at this point of the year, and I like it far longer than that. I hope he's right on both counts. Let's go to Joe in Illinois. Joe. Hey, uh, Jim. Joe Marzano, Orland Park, Illinois. Can't figure this one out. Bought it right after the IPO, Portillo's. Every single one of these that they open up, there's lines around the block, lines around the block. I don't know of any business that has lines around the block. This stock is going nowhere. I thought I had the next Chipotle in my hand. What's the problem? They're bought by Brookshire Hathaway. Okay. I think the problem is there's a constant uh, regurgitation of stock. We've seen many sellers of this stock, and it has to do with the way that they did this ridiculous um, offering. I agree with you. I like Portillo's very much. I understand the line. But every time this thing gets ahead of steam, uh, there's a giant slug of stock that gets priced. Here there was one 8 million shares not that long ago at 2105. You're dealing with sellers, sellers that are in the company who are shareholders or sellers who were part of the company uh, from the banker era. I want Portillo's to come on and tell us that that selling's over. Just tell us that the stock can go higher and the sellers are done. If they do that, I got to tell you something. You'll see your stock much higher. It has nothing to do with the company. It has everything to do with the big sellers. Period. End of story. Lucas in Minnesota. Lucas. Hey, Jim Kramer. Thank you so much for all of the knowledge you disseminated us uh, home game. Ah, you're kind. I'm looking at your and wondering why a small cap Restaurant has a mid-cap stock price. Well, look, Chipotle's one that we've liked from the beginning. The stock's doing very well. 
when inflation kind of really gets under control, which it will, I hope not because banks collapsing, but because the Fed's price their hikes are going to play a role, Chipotle is going to go much, much higher. It is the best of the best. Portillo's again, come on, tell us that we know more of these big slugs of stock, and we will embrace you the way I embrace those hot dogs, which are darn good. But it's kind of a Chicago hot dog. It's not like a traditional hot dog. So it's not like a cheesesteak. Right, the charts interpreted by, by Larry Williams suggest that the market's already bottomed for real. And even better, it could be due for a long-lasting move higher. Quite the time for today, given the fact that we saw the market fall apart at 3 o'clock. Much more man money ahead, including my exclusive with on holding. No S series, just holding. Running up nearly 30% after earnings. Could the Swiss sportswear giant continue its post-earnings strength in the t- tough tape? Let's discuss it with the top brass. And regular viewers know my affinity towards NVIDIA. But tonight I'm unveiling a new investing tactic for the AI powerhouse that you do not want to miss. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of very scratchy throat lightning round. So stay with Kramer. Swiss banks may be out, but Swiss sneakers are very much in. I'm talking about on holding. That's the athletic footwear and apparel company best known for its running shoes. So its stock surged 26% yesterday in the wake of a truly tremendous quarter. These guys delivered 91% revenue growth, gave you a very bullish forecast for both the current year and the full year. I think this has become one of the best growth stories out there, but do not take it from me. Earlier today, we got a chance to speak with Martin Hoffman, the co-CEO and CFO of One Holding, and his fellow co-CEO, Mark Maurer. Take a look. Mark and Martin, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you for having us, Jim. All right, well, let's start with you, Mark. It took Nike eight years to get to $1 billion from when it came public. It took you less than 18 months. How the heck is that possible? I mean, we, we hear that for the first time, so that's uh, exciting news. But I think it's really possible thanks to an absolutely amazing team that is delivering outstanding products, outstanding experiences to our fans. And, you know, the way our fans and consumers are appreciating the product, the stories that we are creating is, is so much fun. And, you know, we couldn't be more proud of, of what we've achieved. Now, Martin, when I look at the doors that you're in wholesale, they are, I'd say, even just a very, very small fraction of where you can be. But when I look at how at your capacity to make more shoes, what's going to happen? You cannot possibly meet the demand that you're seeing right now. Well, this is what we try to do. We try to keep the demand, uh, the supply below the demand. So we are a premium brand. We want to create scarcity. But uh, we have ramped up significantly on the production side. So we are ready to continue to grow. In a, on a global level, uh, you said we have still a lot of retailers where we are not present and we want to grow into. But then we also have so many more markets like China, for example, where we're just at the very beginning and there's much more to come. Martin, I'll come back to you because you're CFO, too. There are very few companies that have this revenue growth that care about profitability. Why have you chosen to focus on both rather than just pure revenue growth? Well, maybe call it our Swiss DNA. Um, so we also like to be profitable in the end. And we really want to grow durable, but at the time doing that profitable. And it was really very much the goal since the very beginning. Now, Mark, I know you as a running shoe. Out of nowhere, you're a tennis shoe. And the people you affiliate are some of the most exciting people in the world. How important are these 
players who love your stuff. Yeah, I mean, we just signed Iga Swiatek, the world number one um, female tennis player. We signed Ben Shelton, the upcoming uh, star in, in the U.S. And, you know, it, they're very, very important to us because they are, you know, they're really showing us how much they're appreciating the product. They're helping us in the development of the product. They are very authentic individuals that, that align with the values and the mission of ON. And we couldn't be more excited to, to have them part of the team um, and, and start a long-term long journey with them really bringing tennis as a sport to the to the wider audience. And, and yet here you have children's shoes in front of you. You don't have necessarily the big running shoes, someone winning Milrose games. Why the children's shoes? Well, we got a lot of letters actually uh, from kids that said, hey, I want to wear the same shoes like my parents. When, when can I do this? And then maybe it's also because uh, the whole executive team basically had, has kids exactly in that age. Um, so now finally the full family is in on shoes at home. But Jim, I can tell you they're selling really, really fast. So to everyone who's listening, you better run into your next door right now. Otherwise, they're gone. Well, I like that. I like that competitive spirit. But Martin, there's something very wrong with your shoes. And you know what it is? I've got a half dozen of them myself. Now, I am not your core demo. Just the other day, I bought this incredible Cloud 5 because I happen to own a boat, and this to me looks like a boating shoe. How is it possible that you've crossed over already from pure athletes to guys like me? Well, this was very much from the beginning. So we are a performance brand, so it's about innovation, but at the same time, we have a very strong design DNA, really strong designers that, that, that basically create a shoe that feels good, and it looks good, and more and more shoes are totally sustainable as well. Well, it's true. I like to slip them on. It's too hard for me to, to uh, tie my shoe these days. All right, so, Mark, if I were to go to the region in London, would I be able to get in immediately, or would I have to wait in line to buy shoes? No, you, you, it depends on the exact time of the day, so better go there early. But we're super happy uh, about the performance of the Regent Street on store in London that we just just opened. And I hope the next time you go there, we also go there with your wife so we can sell a couple of pairs and some apparel, too. Well, she's like Amelda Marcos from the Philippines. I've got a whole closet of just these shoes. I don't understand it till I try one on and I get it now, uh, Martin. When I look at where Nike is, I always hear people say, you know what, I'm going to topple Nike. I'm going to topple Nike. I heard it from Reebok. I heard it from Adidas. I heard it from Under Armour. Nobody seems to be able to topple these guys. Do you even need to topple them, though, in order to win? Well, we, we are in on a certain year journey so far. Uh, so we take it step by step. Uh, Ten years ago, we wouldn't have dreamt where we are today. Uh, we have still a lot of room for growth. We have a very strong product pipeline. I spoke about the geographical expansion that is still there. Um, so we really focus on ourselves. Uh, we are looking at the Paris Olympics where we really want to end up on the podiums on a couple of races. And um, then we see where we, where we go from there. Very exciting. Now, Mark, uh, I'm trying to figure out uh, exactly, because you mentioned it six times, how important it was to go from on-running.com to on.com on a website. Yeah, so, you know, we are a sportswear brand, right? So we're rooted in running, but we're selling footwear into running, into outdoors, into tennis, into all day. And most importantly, we're also having an amazing uh, apparel offering. So it was very important for us to 
be on.com and not just on running.com. And it's being appreciated. It, it really had an impact on, on our traffic. And we're very happy that we were able to have this new URL and, and be able to bring it to our fans. Well, I can tell you, I think this the company is fantastic. The stock is way undervalued versus the trajectory of both gross margins and sales. I want to thank Martin Hoffman, he's the co-CEO and CFO, and Mark Maurer, who's the co-CEO of On Holding. Okay, On Holding is an amazing company, not just an amazing shoe. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you thank so you much. Well. See you next time. Coming up, what's in your mind, Kramerica? Give us a call. The lightning round is storming the NYSE. Next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Talk to the light round Christmas. I'm going to start with Al in Illinois. Al. <laughs> Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Thanks for taking all right, back and to all you guys do and your crew for all of us viewers and investors. They make me look good every day, believe me, especially on days like today. What's going on? <laughs> you guys are great. Uh, listen, I got a stock for you. Uh, Reliance Steel and Aluminum. Ticker symbol is RF. Okay, Reliance is good. New core is better. That said, there's a lot of pressure on the steel companies at this point in the business cycle. I want to wait till the group goes lower. How about Luis in Illinois? Luis. Hey, Jim. I'm calling in today regarding ticker symbol TSM, Taiwan Semiconductor. I do like this company very much. Uh, That said, we have companies like AMD. We have companies like NVIDIA. And I think they have more intellectual firepower. And that's what I want to own. Can we go to Kyle in Pennsylvania? Kyle. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. First time, long time, love the show, and I hope you live forever. My question is, wow. what effect do you think that gambling will have on the stock price of the WWE? And do you think it's possible that Stone Cold Steve Austin comes out of retirement for one night only to take the belt next weekend at WrestleMania? Well, I got to give him a call after the show. I promise to talk to him after the lighting round. Um, but you know what? I suggest that you buy DraftKings. That way you don't have the exposure, and I can go get my, uh, my belt uh, and then put it on and then uh, give your man a buzz, and we'll get to the bottom of it, most certainly. Let's go to Leon in Pennsylvania. Leon. Booyah, Professor Kramer. Oh, uh, thank you for that. Thank you Blackstone. for that uh, tutorial. I have tenure. Blackstone? Yep. Wow. Blackstone's at 83. I, I kind of get interested in that. I, I, I like that. I like that. I think that's, a, it's, that's good to go. Let's go to... Joe in New Jersey. Joe in New Jersey. Joe. Hello, Jim Kramer. Thank you for having me on. Happy to be there. Yes. Uh, hey, with the, with the negative earnings per share and a near 52-week low, is Prudential Financial a buy? Uh, you know, I, I'm not recommending. I'm kind of backing away from financials till the crisis is over. It does look very compelling, but it might look even compelling lower, which is the problem. Let's go to Dave in Illinois. Dave. Dr. Kramer, my mad Boca bottle signing friend. By the way, thoroughly enjoyed yesterday's interview with other the worldly CEO Jensen Wong. How are you, my uh, friend? Well, I'll tell you, I, I have a bit of a scratchy throat. Otherwise, I'm fine. And how are you, sir? 
Yeah, I can hear that. I'm good. Jim, last month on Mad Money, you showcased this company as one of the top performers in 2023. So bring us up to date on this drug manufacturer called Catalan. Well, you know, there was a lot of talk that Dan or her was going to buy them. Now, as you know, Dave, a faithful member, that Dan or her is a charitable trust name. We thought that maybe that acquisition could be good because the stock used to be much higher. Our problem is, is that there's, I listened to Scott Wapner talk with Carl Icahn about Illumina, and it made me think there may be something that could brew there. I don't know, but right now I don't want to buy Catalan because nothing's been announced. But thank you for the kind words, and I promise to uh, get my voice back uh, uh, slaughterhouse. Now, let's go to John of Wisconsin. John. Mr. Kramer. John. Hey, I, wanted to, I wanted to thank you for entertaining and inspiring young investors like myself. Well, that's what I try to do. When I, I meet people who are older investors, they were younger investors when the show started. <laughs> hey, I, I know you're a big Philly guy, but Dr. J wasn't very kind to my beloved uh, Amazon stock today. What do you think? Um, which stock? Amazon? Amazon, I like Amazon. I, I think that Amazon, the biggest problem with Amazon right now is that they have to figure out the right table of employment. But when they do, it's to the moon, Alice. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, how Jensen Huang's moment is drawing near. Next. I am obsessed with NVIDIA and its CEO, Jensen Wong. I call him the modern-day Da Vinci because just like the original Da Vinci, he's ages ahead of his time. NVIDIA is so fantastic that I renamed my late stray mutt after him. There can be no higher compliment than a pet rename. I mention all this because in the end, this is a show about stocks, and I find it hard not to endorse the stock of this wondrous company that makes the technology behind generative AI, including the massively popular ChatGPT. It's amazing to me that nobody was really thinking how to harness the stunningly fast machines NVIDIA created until ChatGPT caught on. Jensen showed me all the incredible things that could be done with his chips almost a year ago. I, I, I watched as the computer painted my request of what a Cezanne landscape would look like. Not easy when the guy liked to paint still lifes or what it would be like to witness a Shakespeare play in its first run at the Globe Theater. It even mimicked me. I actually talked to myself or someone who looked and alarmingly sounded like me. It was insanely cool, though. But nobody paid attention until ChatGPT emerged. And then 150 million people were enthralled in just a few months. Now, just a few months later, everyone from almost every vertical is trying to figure out how they can use NVIDIA's technology to make their business better or else be left behind by others who try it. Jensen's keynote yesterday was explosive. He described a code-free world where everyone can ask questions and get answers and put those answers to work. The machines that use the cars are learning constantly. Right now, eh, not all are as smart as most humans, but that's going to change. And when it does, Jensen says we'll be able to ask you pretty much everything. In our interview last night, I asked if we'll be able to get it to cure all sorts of cancers. He said not yet, maybe in the future. 
or how it will be able to make a company more sustainable or help a regulator spot unusual activity at a bank and prevent a run before it happens, something no human bank examiner is fast enough to do right now. Hey, maybe NVIDIA could have saved Silicon Valley Bank with a real-time alert system. Right now, it's still next day, which is insanely late in this extremely digital era. Jens is most proud of how AI can democratize education, teaching people subjects that are currently well beyond their ken. He also talks about how these chips are much better for the environment now than anything we've got. But let's bring it all back to what matters, to you, the investor. In NVIDIA, the stock support, let's say, it's right now worth uh, $654 billion in market cap. Given that all these ideas are on the come and definitely not ready yet, what do you do? Well, that's the trillion-dollar question. Literally, we don't know what the earnings will be from all the high-performance ships are going to sell. But the fact is, if everybody's a customer, including the Googles, the Metas, the Microsofts, the Oracles, then why shouldn't the stock trade higher? If AI keeps taking off, they certainly won't be able to meet the demand anytime soon, if at all. I know that Bill Gates compares AI to the invention of the microprocessor. Jensen himself says it's an iPhone moment. I come back and say nobody else comes close to NVIDIA when it comes to this particular innovation. It's not unlike, uh, it really isn't unlike Intel. Um, Intel was in the early days of the personal computer. They had the field themselves. Or Apple in the early days of the smartphone. Those are two inventions where the stocks just kept running and running and running. Now, Intel ultimately fizzled, but that took decades. Apple's still going. I say own it still and don't trade it. As for NVIDIA, I've got the same prescription. Own it, don't trade it. Although if the stock gets dragged down by a market-wide sell-off like the one we saw today at 3 p.m. off a problem with the banks, well, then you've got my blessing to buy into weakness and then hold. Pretty simple. NVIDIA's in the Apple camp, and the modern-day Da Vinci will keep it there. I'd like to say there's always more market somewhere. Probably I'd find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.